Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hi, everyone. I wish every now and then you guys got the opportunity to stand here and see your amazing, beautiful half faces. Um, it is even more difficult to identify who is who with caps and sunglasses on. So um, if I haven't said hi or recognized you, um, welcome this morning. My name's Nick. It is my privilege to be able to land our Jonah series. And uh, our Jonah series um, is, has been titled uh, Rebel Hunter. One of the things that we recognize when we look at... Um, Jonah, it, it seems like everything is about Jonah. The book is called Jonah. Jonah is the lead actor in all of this. And yet one of the things that we've tried to communicate as different teachers and preachers have preached is this isn't really a story about Jonah more than it is a story through Jonah. Uh, this is a story about God's compassion, his mercy, his pursuit of rebels, as told through the eyes of Jonah. And probably the only person that doesn't seem to be getting this is Jonah. Quick recap, God tells Jonah that I want you to go from one city where you live um, to another city where there are enemies of God, and I want you to preach in that city. So Jonah decides to go anywhere but that city in the complete opposite direction, uh, jumps on this ship, um, and because God is pursuing him relentlessly, God sends a storm. In the midst of the storm, uh, the sailors decide that the only way that they can save themselves when they recognize that the storm is because of Jonah um, is to cast lots. They see that it is Jonah's fault. They throw him overboard. Once he's overboard, he starts to sink to the bottom and a huge fish swallows him. He stays in that fish for three days and then he is vomited up onto the shore of Mission. Um, and then he goes into Nineveh and he preaches. And Nineveh is changed. Uh, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, they change some of their evil and wicked ways. And now we reach the point where Jonah would be, thank you, God, for the privilege of being able to be used by you. Thank you that you used me to be able to communicate your love and mercy even to people that have hurt and harmed me. That's not what happens, right? So we will read from Jonah 4, we'll read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. Jonah 4 verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Way to try and insult someone by using that, right? And now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city, found a place east of it, and then he made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased. Of course he was. He was comfortable. 
When the day came, when the next day came, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. Not like this nice refreshing wind that we have, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die. This is, this is like a script he has here. It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. Now the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left, as well as many animals. Now it's hard not to have a bit of an emotional reaction to what is essentially a tantrum that would make a two-year-old proud, right? Moms and dads, have you ever walked through the grocery store with your child and your child says they want this and you say, no, you can't have it? Or maybe you've witnessed children lying on the ground, beating down. Now, they've got nothing on Jonah. This is supposed to be a mature prophet of God that is acting like a three-year-old child. The way the book abruptly ends, um, for a lot of people, is quite unsatisfying. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole generation of people that are growing up that don't know what cliffhangers are because of Netflix. Um, and in the old days, we had to wait for the new episode the next week, or we had to wait three months for the new season. There's a whole generation of people that don't know what that means. It's like, are you still watching Netflix? Yes, I am. Don't judge me, you know? And so what happens here is a cliffhanger because we don't know what happens to Jonah. But I, I want to submit that it's less important what happens to Jonah because ultimately what, what this book is showing us is the nature and character of God. Also, your personality and experience probably plays into what you think happened to Jonah. So I think by nature and personality, there's a couple of ways that you can uh, think. I think this is how the story ends because it ends rather abruptly, right? So if by personality and by temperament you're a little like me, you're like, I know exactly what happened to him. He shriveled and died in the desert because he was disobedient. That's what happened to him. Or maybe, maybe you're kind of a little softer, gentler. You, you realize, no, after God said that to him, what happened is Jonah repented and he became compassionate and he became an obedient prophet. That's, that's probably how this, this, uh, this story ends. Or... Maybe like most of us, Jonah continued this up and down relationship with God where Jonah continued to make mistakes and God continued to pursue him. Where Jonah continued to say, yes, I'll do something or no, I won't do something. And God in his mercy and compassion continued to pursue him and say, Jonah, I know what's better for you. This is a contrast. When we contrast Jonah's emotional instability to the consistency of God, God pursued Jonah through these dramatic events. In the beginning, we have this, the storm. We have the, the casting of the lots. We have the fact that he's thrown overboard. We, we have this fish that swallows him and then, and then uh, throws him up onto the shore. But now we have God asking some more subtle questions. And these subtle questions are designed to expose Jonah's hypocrisy, his fear, his selfishness, and ultimately his sin. One of the things that we do that is very similar to Jonah is that we build shelters 
rather than come to God. We build shelters from our pain rather than come to God. Verse 3, and now take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah didn't answer. He just left the city, found a place east of it, made a shelter, and sat there in its shade to see what would happen. Now, no one is disputing the kind of physical and emotional and spiritual pain Jonah must have gone through. We've spoken about this. Uh, you, you are telling a Jewish prophet to go to the enemy of Israel and to proclaim grace. That, that is very difficult to understand. And we have a man here that was thrown overboard, um, that was in the midst of a storm, that was swallowed by a fish, that was thrown up on the shore, and now went to his enemy to proclaim judgment, and judgment didn't come. So no one is saying that he's had an easy time of this. But we tend to be a lot like Jonah whether we're in sin or disobedience, disappointment or pain, consolation will be our primary pursuit. What we will tend to do is build a shelter for ourselves. So we feel sorry for ourselves because we, we understand that we want to mitigate the pain. We want to shelter ourselves from what has happened. What is your shelter? Maybe it's one drink too many. Maybe it's one website you know you shouldn't be on. Maybe it's a purchase that you know is an unwise purchase, but it'll make you feel better in the sense of your pain. What are you sheltering yourself with in response to pain and disappointment and, and things not working out the way that you expected them to work out? Sometimes our, our current pain and our desire to be free from our pain prevents us from seeing what God is trying to expose in us while we're walking through this painful time. The mercy of God is that he can soothe us in this time because what God does is, is this, this leaf, leafy plant kind of grows over the shelter that Jonah made. And, and in that, again, we see the merciful hand of God. It's like Jonah built his own shelter to shelter himself from his own emotional instability, and God builds the shelter. And there are times in our lives where God does comfort us, but he is more committed to our Christ-likeness. And what he will do in situations like that when we've built our own shelter is there will be a worm that destroys your own shelter so that God can expose in you what he needs to expose. We understandably move to minimize our pain as the first reaction. But we seldom spend enough time trying to figure out why we are there in the first place. When I was in elementary school, I had a BMX bike. And one of my jobs once a week was to go to the dairy. Now, those of you that are under 30, a dairy is a place that just makes milk and cheese and dairy products. And... Uh, they would sell milk in glass bottles. And so I had a BMX, and, um, and I would have to somehow balance these glass bottles in the carrier on, on the front of the BMX. And I would, I would be riding home, and one day I was riding home with these glass bottles, and I saw a classmate. Uh, and as I was turning right, I saw this classmate, and I decided that I was going to make fun of this classmate. Um, and so his name rhymed with a specific slur. And so as I was turning, I, I'm not going to tell you what I said, but I said bad things to that guy. And as I looked up, 
there was a truck that had stopped, right? Smashed into the back of the truck, um, side on, the bike flung around, I landed on the glass that had broken and on the bike. And I was bleeding from my legs all the way down. To make matters worse, the person that I had just sworn at came running to see if I was okay. So, so there I am, after just having insulted him, lying in absolute humiliation, bleeding like anything, and he's helping me. So of course, like any man, I get up, pretend that I'm not hurt, I ride home and then try and soothe myself. When my mom got home, do you think I told her exactly what happened? Do you think I told her what caused the accident? No, I just wanted sympathy. I just wanted someone to kind of be with me in my shelter and, and understand, yes, that's sore, that's painful. I did not tell her that this was completely and utterly my fault. And the reason that I'd hurt myself like this was because I was being a bit of a pig. And so what happens in our, in our lives where there's relationship breakdown or where there's broken trust or where there's financial loss or maybe we've lost a job, we always sit on the edge of the situation waiting for that person to be judged by God. We're waiting in the shelter of our own comfort that we've made of ourselves and we're waiting, we're saying... I wonder when God is going to judge that person for what happened to me. And yet we have the privilege to wonder, God, what are you showing me about myself? Now, obviously, I'm not talking about abusive situations here. Obviously, I'm not talking about situations where you had absolutely no hand in the difficulty and the pain that you experienced. But I would say those are rarer and situations where we at least have had something to do with the kind of pain, disappointment, and despair that we're feeling. So how do we avoid the Jonah trap? Well, the first thing that we do is we look inward. Jonah is experiencing self-righteousness, self-pity, joy, anger, suicidal ideation. There's real emotional instability here in Jonah. He is blind to all of this. He's blind to himself. He's blind to God and he's blind to others. In verse 8, as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. When we were traveling in Nepal and India, I was very, very sick on the flight from Nepal to India. And um, I, I spent most of it with an airsick bag. Um, and uh, and in the, in the, I, had, I had a nice gentleman next to me who took his sandals off and was playing with his, with his toes while I was really trying to keep my food inside my body. And then the meal came out, which was curry, which I really like, but when you're nauseous, is, it's not a, a good idea. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we land at the bottom, uh, the foothills of the Himalaya. We have to take a taxi all the way up. I thought I was going to die multiple times, still being incredibly nauseous. We get up to the hotel. Some of you know who Eric Santiago is. 
And they said there's only two rooms. One is uh, the one right here by the reception, and one is upstairs, and it's, um, it is isolated. And I said, I'm taking the upstairs one. And Eric's like, let's talk about this. I'm like, we are not talking about this. And I went up. I had to apologize to Eric about that because my focus was my own pain and what I was going through and trying to minimize it. And all I could think of right now was to lie down in a bed and not be sick. The next day, as God exposed that to me, I had to apologize to him. And I mean, this is not a godly way of acting. There are times where we need to recognize that our emotions are indicators that there is something further down that is wrong. Three times Jonah says he wants to die. Once when God doesn't destroy Nineveh, once when he gets hot, and once when he appoints the womb. And like I said, God loves you so much that he's going to show you how untrustworthy you and your desires are that he will make sure that your shelters come down. The good thing about Jonah is at least Jonah talked directly to God. And when God asked this question, is it good for you to be angry? It's an important question because anger in and of itself is not the problem here. It's not the kind of emotion. But what God is asking is a deeper question. Why are you feeling this emotion? I've said before that unprocessed emotions are like rudders or hidden reefs. Unprocessed emotions either guide us without us even understanding where we're going, or we hit them because we haven't paid any attention to them. So we either pay too much attention to our emotions and we just are led by them, or we hit something and we don't understand what's going on. One day we were driving back from the beach, Karen and I, and... Uh, or we are in the fast lane of the five that has seven lanes at this stage, and all of a sudden the car cuts out. I don't know what's going on. So, so here I am in the middle of this traffic trying to get this mom van across to the other side, and I don't understand what's going on. Well, what has happened is that Karen has taken a little sticky note and she's covered the fuel light with the sticky note, and we ran out of gas. Um, and what happens is that's what we do. We see these emotions pop up on the dashboard, and what we do is we just put the sticky note over it. I'm not going to deal with this now. I'm not saying she did it on purpose. Everyone relax, Karen is fine, you know. <laughs> you know, go to the bank was the sticky note. I'm like, the only thing more ironic would have been if the sticky note had said, get gas. That would have been the, the more ironic thing, right? But what happens with our emotions is that they are dashboard lights. And it's not the light that we pay attention to. It's what that light is indicating. So I'm angry. What does that indicate? I'm sad. What does that indicate? Why am I frustrated? Why am I irritated? And God is asking Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He's not saying anger is not a good emotion. He's just asking. He's trying to dig deep. Is it right for you to be angry? Emotions often reveal the naked truth about what you believe about God, about what you believe about yourself, and about what you believe about others. God is trying to show Jonah that he is self-centered. And he's trying to get Jonah to look deeper and broader. And he's trying to get him to look up and out. 
So how do we not become like Jonah? We look up. God is always present. We don't always like the form that God is in. Because God was in the call. God was in the storm. God was in the casting of lots. God was in throwing Jonah overboard. God was in the fish. God was in the plant. God was in the wind. God was in the womb. God, God is all over this. God is in the situations that you face. But we don't like the way necessarily that God reveals himself in those situations. When we are destabilized by the power and fickleness of our emotions, it's critical for us to look upward at a God that does not change. When we are being tossed to and fro in the wind of our emotions or the circumstances in our environments, it's important for us to understand the anchor of our soul. I mean, Sean didn't know that I was going to use this, but, but the irony in the passage of Scripture, when Jonah tries to show God how angry he is, and I knew that you were kind and I knew that you were compassionate, is that passage from Exodus. It's the passage where Moses asks God, what kind of God are you? And God says to Moses, you cannot bear seeing me, and I will pass by you quickly, but this is the kind of God that I am. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty and visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's kindness and steadfast love lasts for thousands and his anger for three and four generations. So here God is saying, I am a God of justice, and I'm a God of mercy. Something that Jonah did not recognize. The irony that Jonah is saying, I knew that you were this kind of God. I knew that you were kind, and I knew that you were compassionate. And look at the kindness and compassion that God has shown Jonah, who has been, um, who has been guilty of disobedience multiple times. It's amazing that Jonah gets frustrated at this kind of characteristic of God. It's like when I was playing uh, poker with Karin. And I am, I'm relatively competitive. You know, it's, it's not something I feel like I have to pay attention to. I don't think God is drawing my attention to, to be maybe a little less competitive. But, yeah, I know. I can tell by the murmurings. You're like, wow, the level of self-deceit is pretty high here. So we're playing poker, and um, I'm so frustrated with Karen because she looks over at someone else who I'm about to crush because they don't have hardly any chips. And Karen says, oh, oh, you can have some of mine. <laughs> and I'm totally frustrated. I'm frustrated by her kindness. I'm frustrated by her generosity. It's the same thing with Jonah. I'm like, do you know how many times I have benefited from Karin's kindness and generosity? Don't no, one, no one give any numbers. It'd be too high. I spend my life benefiting from Karin's kindness and generosity. Just like Jonah consistently benefits from God's kindness and generosity and yet says, I knew you were kind. I knew you were compassionate. And some of us sit there and think, this is ridiculous. Who would think that God is too kind and too compassionate? But during the Jonah series, remember, we covered this. There are some people in our lives that we think do not deserve the kindness of God. And some of the reason is because of the way that they've hurt us. Some of the reason is because of the values that they hold and espouse. 
And yet what God is saying is no one is beyond the reach of God. It is vital in times like these to remind ourselves of the character of God. You know, Moses never got to see the fullness of God. Jonah kind of glimpsed it, and he was probably the worst one who didn't recognize it. But in 1 Peter, Peter tells the church this, concerning this salvation that you as a Christ follower have experienced, the prophets, which include Moses and Jonah, who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance of the sufferings of Christ. Let me tell you simply what that means. That's saying that there were prophets that were talking and prophesying about Jesus' coming with grace and mercy to be able to bring judgment on sin, pay the penalty of sin, and for us to be able to walk in mercy. And they never got to fully understand it. They never got to fully experience it. And even angels long to look into it. But you, church, are recipients of that kindness and mercy. When we look upward, that's the kind of God we see. And that's why as we've looked inward and try and follow the kinds of emotions that that have been exposed by this time, what gives us safety and security is we look upward and we see a God that in the midst of our betrayal, in the midst of our disappointment, even in the midst of our sin, will hold us firm because he is a steady anchor. We look outward. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow, It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left. Now we feel, okay, that that description is generous. Does God not know what the Ninevites have done? And, you know, we've spent time uh, explaining during the course of the series. The Ninevites were not good guys. The Ninevites were bad guys. They, they were murderers. They, they were people that enslaved the Israelites. And yet what God is saying is, I will have compassion on who I will have compassion on. And part of the reason that we find that so difficult, just like Jonah, is because we don't look outward enough to be able to see with compassion and courage the fact that every single person is God's person that every single human being has been created in the image of God, that there is a common grace that rests on every human being, that regardless of what they've done, they are able to be forgiven by the grace of God. And the challenge for us is that we decide who is worthy and who is not. And that's why Jonah was so upset. That's why he was so annoyed. Now, the word that we translate for care for means to to pity, to have compassion on. In fact, the the broader meaning means to grieve over something, to to have your heart broken or or weep. Jonah grieved because he was in pain. He didn't grieve because a whole city of people were going to be wiped away by the judgment of God. That's not why he was grieving. He was grieving because of his comfort was being affected. He was grieving because he couldn't understand that the people that had harmed him were receiving the same kind of forgiveness that he has received from God. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he wept because of Jerusalem's self-righteousness. We don't need you. We've got our law. We're doing things right. We don't need you. He wept over their deception. 
He wept over their lack of faith. He wept over the fact that they were in bondage to sin, to sickness, to demonic activity. He wept because he loved. Jesus had compassion on the people that he knew were forming a plan to torture and crucify him. He wept over Jerusalem. As a people, we need the compassion and courage that Jesus showed us. We need compassion for our world, understanding that we are no less clean than the world around us. And we also need courage to be able to declare this message of grace and truth. We need compassion to see other people that are caught in cycles of sin and be able to offer mercy. We need courage in the context of our community to be able to lovingly say to someone, is it right for you to be? Is it right for you to be? You've received the Spirit of God. You've received the forgiveness of Jesus. Is it right for you to be? We need compassion and courage to call out the idols in our world and to make sure that we are not the ones bowing down to idols of comfort and convenience, safety, and security. When we get emotional and tired, when we feel like we've been betrayed, where, where the call of the mission seems more like a burden, we need to remember this, that when Jesus freed people, in fact, when Jesus freed the person in whom there were so many demons, he became a herald. He said to Jesus, go into the, Jesus said to him, go into the city and tell people what God has done for you. It's in times where we feel like we need healing that our healing can come in our heralding. Because we are a loved and purposeful people. We aren't just loved sons and daughters of the living God. We've been given a purpose. And that purpose is by the way in which we behave, by the words in which we speak, by the things that we buy and don't buy, by the decisions that we make to say that there is one greater than me here. And I choose to serve him. Uh, Donnie, who leads a church in North Carolina and who's also a prodigious hunter, um, in every sense of the word, bows, guns, all those kinds of things. He says this, a hunting dog doesn't care about fleas. A hunting dog doesn't care about fleas. Now, he has hunting dogs. And I mean, they don't sit on the couch, and he doesn't give them special food, and he doesn't, they don't sleep in his bed. These are, these are real dogs, okay? They're hunting dogs. They perform a purpose. You know, they're not there to soothe your emotions. They're, they're there for a purpose, okay? So, I know, Betsy, Betsy's saying roll it back. It's too late for that. It's too, too late to roll it back, okay? But hear what I'm saying, church. Hunting dogs don't care if they have fleas. What happens is that when we lose our sense of purpose in God, where we, where, where we don't understand that we are both a loved and purposeful people, then we spend a whole lot of time dealing with our fleas. Now, like I've said, it is important to look inward. But we look inward so that we can look upward so that we can look outward. And part of our purpose here is to be healed, yes. Is to be whole, yes. Is to be loved, yes. But part of our purpose is to have the privilege of joining him in the restoration of all things in this beautiful world that he created and is restoring back to himself. When we look outward, 
We don't just see a community that needs our love and affection, but we also see each other and we realize that we are not alone. Now, Jonah didn't have a choice. Jonah was alone. But we have the community of believers to support, encourage, and challenge us when our emotions get the best of us. Band, you can come up here. When Jesus was coming towards Jerusalem, he stood up and he said, there is one greater than Jonah here. Jesus uh, didn't mention any prophet by name other than Jonah. He alluded to the prophecies about him, but the only prophet that Jesus calls by name is Jonah. And he says to the people wanting a sign, you won't receive a sign. There is one greater than Jonah here. What does that mean? Well, I, I think part of the challenge of living in the world in which we live is that we really don't believe that there's going to be a judgment and we're quite uncomfortable with that. A God that does not judge, Miroslav Volf says, is wrapped in a bow of love and is a very Western middle class and suburban idea. And when your life has been brutal and difficult, you don't just expect judgment, but you welcome it. In countries where there is genocide, in countries where, where, um, where people's health is being denied over profit, judgment is something that people look forward to. Problem is, the suburbanites, we don't see individualism, materialism, greed, and the search for comfort and convenience as evil. Yet scripture constantly reminds us of the weight of sin. And so what we've done is we've separated the idea of the, that this is something that should be judged and this is not something that should be judged. And what we've forgotten is the real crime about the perpetuation of sin is not just the act itself, but it's against who we are perpetrating the act against. And our sin, whether it's our search for comfort uh, or whether it's stealing something, is a sin against a holy God. When we understand it as that, we understand how brutal it is that a kind, gracious, compassionate God, every time we sin and choose ourselves over, um, choose our comfort and our convenience over Him, is a sin against God. That's one thing to sin, right? It's one thing to punch me in the face. Most of you would be like, he probably deserves it. And you're probably right. Okay? Punch Nick in the face. It's another thing to punch Karin in the face. But it's another thing to punch Aaron in the face. And so what happens is, in, instead of looking at the act of sin, what we need to do is, who are we perpetrating the sin against? A kind, holy, relentlessly pursuing God that is offering you not just a sense of being fully known and loved, but a sense of being purposeful, that your life has meaning beyond comfort. Jesus makes a declarative statement, and it's a statement of character and intent. I am the only one that is qualified to judge, and I am the only one that can give mercy. That's why there's someone better than Jonah that stands here. Jonah spoke judgment. Jesus speaks judgment and mercy. And actually, if you bow your knee to Jesus, all you receive is mercy. Jesus didn't camp outside the city in his own shelter and watch for judgment. Jesus was tortured and crucified on a cross made for him outside the city so that we could receive the justice and mercy of God. God takes our judgment upon him. If we see Jesus as separate to God, this looks like an unfair substitution. God takes the punishment on himself in the form of Jesus, and it is 
It is dispersed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, can we look inward and pay attention to our anger, our sadness, our pain, our failings, and disappointment, and ask God, what are you showing me in this? What are you showing me? Can we look upward? Can we remind ourselves of the nature and character of our God? A sacrificial God. A kind God. A powerful God. A sovereign God. A God able to offer us grace and forgiveness, purpose and destiny. Can we revel in who God is as we look upward? As we look outward with compassion and courage, can we ask the Spirit of God to remind us that we are His purposeful children, loved and adopted into His family, but given a purpose in the context of this world? The Father has rescued us through the sacrifice of His Son, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. It is for that reason that we have avoided the judgment of God and tasted deep of the mercy of God. It is for that reason that we can demonstrate and proclaim the mercies of our God. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.